Okay. Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going south. South in a big way, but, 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 still, but still in these United States. Right. We're not going south of the border unless it's the... Uh, unless it's the Mason-Dixon <laughs> line, right? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's all about the south. I mean, it's obviously emerged as a very distinctive um, subculture in America. Um, the first thing we're going to look at with Kathleen Purvis, who we always like to interview, is um, the spirits tradition, distilling the South. And she's full of information. Kathleen Purvis, you are a real Southern woman, aren't you? <laughs> well, yes, although I've been told I'm not a Southern lady, which makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, possibly, because I have a lot of Southern lady friends. Did you have a coming out party? No, ma'am. Yes, I see? was not from that kind of family. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, you have done um, more than your share of, of writing um, newspaper, uh, the Charlotte Observer, and also um, books, including some of my favorite series, the Savor the South series. And now we have this new one, which is Distilling the South. A study, I mean, a guide to Southern craft liquors and the people who make them. And you divide six liquor trails through 11 states. This is quite an achievement, Kathleen Purvis. Yes, ma'am, it was. It was quite a wild year. Um, I had about 13 months to do the whole thing, including the research and the writing. Oh, that's incredible. And while doing a full-time job. And so basically I just had to kind of wave goodbye to my husband for a year and say, you <laughs> everything, I'm on the road. So, yeah, it was, it was quite the year. Yeah, well, there, you can tell that you're a real pro because you have, um, the way you present is, is, Beautifully written. I mean, that's the thing that makes it so different. You, you get right to the core of what's interesting about it, and you present it in such a way that people are enchanted. Oh, thank you so much. That's exactly what I was hoping people would take from it. I, I realize that a lot of people aren't likely to get in their car and drive three states away to go to a distillery. So My I husband have to make would. sure <laughs> that I built in extra information, you know. So even if you don't ever visit a distillery, you could come away from it learning about more about your alcohol. Well, what is the story? Of course, we associate bourbon with the South, but a lot of people know the, the big names in it. Although I have to tell you, when I read in here about um, almost all the, the, the bourbon um, distillers started in the South, one of the biggest of the big names is uh, Mictors, and that started in that's sort of Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, there's a history there. If you look at the history section or read any history of the South and the creation of alcohol, um, it really, the story started in Pennsylvania. Yes, I know. And then people moved from Pennsylvania after the Whiskey Rebellion, yes, the which whiskey was there. Rebellion. You know, people yeah. moved over into Kentucky and down into the Carolinas because they were trying to get away and get to where they could be less regulated. You know, the American dream was always, you know, we were sort of rugged individualists who, who settled our, this country, the Europeans were anyway. Um, and so there was a tendency to want to go to where there was less regulation. And as it turned out, Kentucky and Tennessee 
just luckily, and, you know, the North Carolina mountains as well, had the perfect conditions for creating alcohols of all kinds. Now, um, you said your grandfather actually did bathtub gin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and beer too, for, according to my mother. During, the, during Prohibition, people did a lot of things. Yes. But now... They, um, did, they, they discovered an appetite for liquor they didn't, never had before. Oh, well, in our family, they probably already knew. We were all, we're all Scotch-Irish, so, you know. <laughs> we come preloaded with a, an interest in drinking. Yeah, I just read that uh, there's going to be a shortage of single malt liquor next year. I don't know why. Possibly. after You know, the same thing happened with bourbon. I mean, because things oh, yeah. go, drinking styles are fashion, and yeah. they tend to go in and out of fashion. And one of the things, of course, with the with the aged liquors, the things like bourbon that are aged in barrels, you can't change on a dime with those things. Right, you have you know, to it's age hard them. To, you can't just blink your, you know, snap your fingers and create more supply. So as people discover something that tends to get wiped out, and then they start making a whole lot more, at just about that time, people move on and discover something else. Yeah, so. We met Julian Van Winkle. Oh uh, yeah, Pappy Van Winkle, I loved. Oh yeah, yes. I loved it. At a reception in Charleston, South Carolina, and he had this whimsical expression on his face because everybody's there drinking, drinking his booze, which which he gave to the event, and 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 yet he knows that that's eating into his stock, and he can't suddenly produce any more. <laughs> exactly. One of my favorite uh, bourbons that I discovered while doing this book was um, a, a, a bourbon called Old Pogue. P-O-G-U-E, okay. from Maysville, Kentucky. And my husband and I, when we were doing the bourbon book a few years ago, had discovered it, skipped out on buying a bottle just because we were traveling across Kentucky and we had the opportunity to buy a whole bunch of other things. And then the old Poe got so popular that he's now had to re- remove it from the shelves of, of liquor stores. The only way to get a bottle is if you order it in advance and go to the distillery in a two-month window to pick it up. <laughs> and it was like I was there, and you can taste it, and I was begging him, please sell me a bottle, and he would not let it go because he said all the bottles were spoken for and ordered. So he's trying to ramp oh, up, no. but, you know, he, he ages his for nine years. There's so, not much you can do to change that track. You have, you have, to, you have to... Patience is a virtue, as they say. Yes, exactly. I think exactly. that's the only answer. Patience does make a difference in alcohols, and some of them. We Others, to... like gin and vodka, you know, much easier to create more quickly. Uh, you said, I think it was in here, about having a, um, a greenhouse. Wait, how, how did that go? There were yes, two the, things the, the, that I thought were talking yes. unlikely. Yes, I just think the outcomes would be very unlikely for aging. Well, this was a really interesting place. You're thinking about the place in West Virginia that is growing their own lemons to make limoncello. Well, that's and good. they grow lemons in this big greenhouse on the side of a mountain, lemon trees. And, you know, it's a place that gets really cold in the winter, and yet they manage to grow these lemon trees inside, you know, indoors at a greenhouse. And then they zest them and make a moonshine-based limoncello that's really delicious. Right. But what about... the where did I read that? It's not in your book about the loud music. Oh yes, audio aging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every everybody's trying to shortcut um, the aging process, particularly for the aged whiskeys, for the bourbons and the the single malts and that kind of thing. And so they're all trying to come up with ways to make this quicker. And it's you see a variety of things. You see people using small barrels. 
I saw a guy in Alabama who was using a refrigeration unit yeah, that to raise and lower the temperature really fast <laughs> to try and mimic, you know, the changing seasons. And then the other one I ran into in a couple of different places was play, were places doing what they call audio aging, where you play really, really loud music with, like, very deep bass notes. Apparently, Beethoven is very popular for this. And it makes the barrel vibrate, and they think that it's making the alcohol inside come into faster contact with the charred oak inside the barrel. Now, whether that actually works or not is, you know, anybody's guess. But, but it's pretty fun when you encounter it. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's unlikely. It sounds like real BS. Yeah. Well, you know, you never know. People are discovering all kinds of things. And, you know, one of the places doing that is a really wonderful brandy distillery in Louisville, Kentucky, called um, Copper and Kings. And it's got a rock and roll sort of theme to the place, to the decoration. And so they, they've used that audio aging as a part of their theme. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's delicious brandy, i got to tell you that. Now, let, let's make sure that... We 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 have uh, listeners educated, learning something new uh, today. Just because they just because they happened to tune in because they were they were interested in a program about booze. So so let's let's uh, pick a, a few things that were for me were new out of the book. For example, MGP. Mm-hmm. M- M- Midwestern grain products. And, yeah, and 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 that's not. Anywhere near, well, it's, I guess it's relatively near to Louisville, Kentucky, but it's, it's but it's in not. It's Indiana, yes. And, and, to, well, to tell our listeners the MGP story. Okay, MGP, um, it, it, it's sometimes, sometimes there's an argument over whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but the truth is that a lot of small distilleries, particularly the startup ones, it takes a while to create something in a barrel that's worth selling, and you have to have a product to sell or you don't have any way to earn money and to support your distillery. And so there's there are contract distillers out there that will make alcohol, that will age it for you, and you can go to their distillery and you can choose the, the profile of the alcohol that you plan to eventually create, and they will help you put together something that will be similar to what you're eventually going to make. And for a while, this got a very unsavory reputation because some um, companies were not revealing this in their marketing or on their label. And so it got a bad reputation. But the truth is, some places now are coming around to being very transparent about it and admitting they're working with MGP. And, and, the, and MGP makes great alcohol. They're very well known for a deep, deep bench of selection in rye whiskeys. Um, so, it, you know, I kind of am a little more forgiving about it as long as they explain what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. They're not going to be able to get a business going without some product. And so you're starting to see places like Smooth Ambler in um, West Virginia that, you know, they're very open about their curation of using things like um, rice being produced by MGP as they switch over to start making their own. Uh, there's another one in... Um, let me see what's called Pier, uh, no New Rift Distilling. That's in um, in Kentucky, right on the border with Cincinnati, and uh, you know that they even work it into their name. Um, Ohio, it's it's O K I, I believe, is the name of their original bourbon, Got it. and it Got stands it. for Ohio, um, Kentucky, Kentucky, and Indiana. Now, our friends, because that's where everything they're making comes from. One of those three places. 
Now, our friends from Mictors, they they did this and they're, they're still, I think they're partway through the process. So the, so yeah, the pe- Mictors, so the, so remind the, me, because I remember from some other research I've done on bourbons, um, Mictors, I believe, had original stock, but they were also running out of that stock. Isn't that right? They were they were trying to supplement what they had. Here's what I understand happened. Truth as spoken by the man who actually created the brand over again. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. they they went out. They were they were early in the business before the whiskey rebellion. Uh, they went out of business during prohibition. They re, they reopened after prohibition, but the but the business went bankrupt in the 1950s, and it was gone. Mm-hmm. And then somebody with an interest in both rye and bourbon whiskey came along and said, "I want to do something with this." So he bought the brand. Essentially, he bought the mash bill for Michter's, mm-hmm. and then he went somewhere to have it made. And you just clarified that for me with your book, because MGP in Indiana is where is where he took it. Right, exactly. And they, you know, they are very, very good at making whiskey. I mean, nobody has said that MGP makes bad products. So, the so only question is whether or not you reveal that you worked with them. And well, as long as you're honest about it, yeah. I'm fine with it. Well, then, then, they, they were making his whiskey. He's now building a still in downtown Louisville. Ah, okay. You, you so he's whiskey. going back to Louisville and away from Pennsylvania? Well, he, oh, he hasn't been in he was, he was, a long time. I don't think he was ever in Oh, okay, okay. I don't think he was ever in Yeah, Kentucky I had been before. confused on what their story was, because my husband's a big fan of Mictors, actually. <laughs> we we looked up some of the history on it, just so we knew more about it. Was that who we interviewed, the two women? Yes, yes. You, you talk about what um, bourbon is masculine and so forth. Um, we interviewed two women who... First of all, I never even knew that their titles, their roles existed. And then uh, traditionally, the two roles never interacted. But they both worked on this one product, and it was splendid. So we had them on uh-huh. that show. Yeah, one, one of them was a, is the master distiller, and the other was the master of maturation. Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Her whole, yes, her whole, yes, I her think her I may know who you're talking about. Yes, yeah, she's an expert in barrels and charring. Exa- yeah. Exactly. Now, now the other yeah. the other story that's interesting that we had read before, but you re- you reminded us of it, is the is the Greenbrier bourbon from from Tennessee, I think, right? Oh, Nelson's Greenbrier. Nelson's yes, Greenbrier. That is an interesting story. Bell Mead is go, the one that ahead. they're best known oh, for. Yeah, Bell Mead. Go ahead. Right. And this is a family that their their great-great-grandfather was one of the first and largest distillers in Tennessee. He got very famous for this. And then he died and left the distillery to his wife, Louisa. And then Prohibition was coming. And, you know, Prohibition, people don't realize that Prohibition didn't just start... When the national repeal happened, I mean, when the national uh, um, amendment happened, prohibition in many southern places started years earlier, and and it ended years later than the national repeal. And so in Tennessee, it was coming on very early, and so she went ahead and sold the distillery and sold the contents, got out of the business entirely before prohibition could hit. And these two young men didn't know anything about their family history until they went out with their father to get a pig for a barbecue they were holding for their friends while they were in college. 
and they stopped to read a historical marker. Oh, wow. And the historical marker was about their family. And they had always kind of heard that there was this history, but they didn't really know anything about it. And they got so fascinated by it that they went to the historical society in that county, which actually had a bottle of their family's original bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, actually, not bourbon. Yeah, right. Um, and they tasted it and said, oh, my God, we've got to learn how to remake this. And so they actually, they worked with a lab to recreate it, and they have a beautiful distillery now that's one of the best Tennessee whiskey makers out there. Yeah, this is Charles and, and his brother's name, I forget now. Uh, it's in the book. I don't have the you book right in front of me right now. But you can't yeah. remember. You can't this remember. This is the Nelson either. Brothers in in Nashville, and it's you know if you're in Nashville, there's a couple of really great distilleries over there that I would highly recommend. Um, the other one, of course, is one of the arms of Corsair, which is Corsair is very uh, sort of the cult distillery. They're they're doing such experimental things that it's really fascinating to go into a tasting there because they have such a wide variety. They have a quinoa whiskey. They have spelt whiskey. They have a rye that is so high in rye, they call it Rymageddon. It's the name of it. <laughs> no, <laughs> and it's really just a, it's a very short distance from the Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. So you can make a day of it real easy with those two. We, we met those guys from Corsair at the Nashville Food and Wine, Music City Food and Wine Festival several, yes, several years ago. Yes, they're very, very creative. They, sh- they sure are, and 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 uh, we were introduced to the to the Nelson boys by their PR person. They got a PR person on board very early. Yeah. Oh yeah, is, they've which, been smart, and their distillery is a, is, is a beautiful, beautiful place. They they put a lot into it. S- Simone Rathley from New Orleans is, oh, yeah. is, is the lady yeah. who does yeah. who does their PR, and she does a she does a super job. It's re- it's really funny. We the first time we went to a Music City Food and Wine Festival. We're, we're standing right next to the county seat or the, or the city county building, I feel, which it was. And, uh, people were saying, well, there, there are several distilleries within a stone's throw of where we are right now in Davidson County, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so, it, so, so it, it's amazing how the, the brown goods business has flourished. <laughs> it's Your brown re- waters, as I like to call them. Yes. Brown waters. It's really funny. Brown waters, yes. Uh, but then there's also, you know, lots of clear waters out there, too, that are also worthwhile. I, I happen to, I noticed um, on these tours that there's a lot going on with craft gins, um, which yeah. I think has taken people by surprise. Gin fell out of favor for a long time, but it's yeah. really coming back. Well, we've tasted people- some of these, and I'll tell you, um, if you just think of gin as the routine stuff that you're used to, it's not even vaguely like that. Some of the really great gins have so many botanicals in them. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And people can get very creative with their sort of what they call the expressions. Um, there's also there's one in Atlanta called uh, Fourth Ward, Old Fourth Ward, and one of the things that amused me is that they get their juniper. Every year when juniper berries come in season, they go to the historic cemetery to the burial spot for the last legal um, bootlegger, (laughs) whiskey maker in Atlanta before Prohibition. They go to his grave every year, and they pick juniper berries from the juniper trees around his grave. (laughs) There are millions of stories. It's a lot more than juniper now. (laughs) Szechuan peppercorns, orange Coriander, oh, yeah. I mean, all kinds of things going into gins. Now, you know, you know how gin arrived, right? 
Uh, well, I've heard many stories. That's a, <laughs> Which was yours? An interesting story. The, <laughs> the story. The story goes that when Prince William of Orange came came over to marry Queen Mary, he he brought the recipe for Geneva with him from ah, home. Ah, yes, yes. And and apparently, the, the, in the British Navy, sailors get a tot of rum every day. In the Dutch Army, which he brought with him. They got a, a jigger of gin. Right, <laughs> and right. It, and Hence, it, well, and there, it's, it, uh, Navy Strength Gin is another one that's coming back into favor. It had disappeared for a while, and, no, and that has to do with how you tested the gin to make sure the gin wasn't watered down. Well, uh-huh. Hold on a second. The, 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 it's a terminology which came along with this. So, the, so, the, so the gin the soldiers took was called Dutch Courage. Ah, yes, exactly. Yes, I have heard that. Well, Kathleen, I mean, this is, I think, not only is it an interesting read, but for those willing to explore these trails that you've laid out, I think it's going to be a a very useful resource for travelers. I hope so. I really was trying to encourage people to get out there, um, stop at places that wouldn't occur to you to stop at, uh, you know, one of the things I love the most about doing these tours when I was out doing the research was the number of places that are in very small towns or out in the country. And in a lot of cases in the small towns, you're seeing people um, repurpose old brick buildings that might have been, you know, furniture factories yeah, or you you know, packer yeah. showrooms in the 1920s, and people are putting distilleries in them. So they're really beautiful old buildings, and they're bringing life back into what had been kind of run-down areas of small towns. That's good, yeah. Of course, the brew pubs did the same thing with churches. Exactly, <laughs> yes, between the craft brewery. And I, had, I did see a number of places where you have, you know, craft brewery operation on one side and a craft distillery on the other. Uh-huh. And, you know, they kind of work together, which gives you a, a lovely way to, you know, stop and spend an afternoon <laughs> yes, or, or an evening. So. <laughs> it's very, you, yeah. you can learn so much. You can learn so much from this book. The, uh, I actually already knew this, but a lot of people will not necessarily pick this up. That Jack Daniel Distillery is in a dry county. Yes, yes, in Lynchburg, <laughs> in Tennessee. Tennessee. And the funny part of it, the man's name was Jack Daniel, <laughs> with, with, mm-hmm. a, with an apostrophe s, yes. <laughs> saying, it, yes. saying it was his whiskey. And most most people get that wrong. Right, and um, the interesting thing, of course, now with that one is the uh, the credit that the company is finally giving to the role played by an enslaved um, whiskey oh, yeah, right, right, right. who worked but with him, and they've now put name? up a statue in his honor. It, you know, it's a great thing to see that I that kind of history coming around. I wanted to interview that woman, and I keep forgetting the the one who who wrote the book about them about him. Yeah, what is yeah. it called? Uh, Oh, no, I can't remember. They had a program <laughs> here. She was a speaker on a, uh, I think it was, um, you yeah, know, it was that craft distillery that uh, mm-hmm. also has a cidery. Anyhow, um, great characters uh, in your research have to help, I think, make it exciting. And uh, you've come up with a, a very useful and genuine um, review of, of an interesting part of our country. Um, thank you, thank you. There's so much going on out there in artisan food production right oh, now yeah. that it, it, you know, it is returning us to a country that makes things again, and many of the things we make are food things. 
Right. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sh- sharing your thoughts about the distilling the South. And craft. Yeah. And Kathleen Purvis, um, good talking to you and hope to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to be asked to talk about it. Great, Kathleen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sure sounds like fun, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, yes, yes. And, 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 and there'll be more fun right after the break, so don't go away, because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, we have Perry Coleman Mapness. Uh, who not only writes uh, with authenticity, but also with a, a good sense of humor. The South is famous, of course, for small bites and, and uh, little snacks for almost any occasion to offer uh, through their t- pension for um, hospitality. And, well, Southern Snacks is a really enjoyable read, even if you're not going to make your pickles uh marinated with Kool-Aid, <laughs> which I thought the, the most outrageous thing I had ever read. Anyhow, it's, it's fun reading Southern Snacks, and it's great fun talking to Perry Coleman Magnus, and here she is. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask Perry, is this an authentic name? Because it sure sounds Southern. Her name is Perry Coleman Magnus. Is that it, Perry? That's it. And and you say your grandmother, um, your great-grandmother? My, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and a seven-year-old cousin all are Perry Coleman. Right. Well, I mean... Well, well now, do you do the first, second, third, and fourth with, with females? Or no. Is that, or is that only guys? I think that's only men. Yeah, I never thought about that before. I guess it is. We just seem to figure it out. <laughs> well... I think that it's perfectly perfect that you have an authentic Southern name and it's a family name because you've written this book called Southern Snacks, which I know just enough about uh, Southern foodways to know that this is an authentic book. And well, thank you. You got such a, a, the color of the culture in the South around food that I mean I. Like you, I would not agree with all the recipes in this book, but I would say absolutely you convey the truth. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. And a lot of it comes from this, the sidebars you have, um, which explain a certain, how would you describe them? I wanted to just put in a little flavor of some southern traditions and southern snacking ideas that aren't necessarily recipes, aren't necessarily something you're going to make at home, (laughs) but are worth a mention and that many southerners will have a really nostalgic reaction to. Exactly. Yes. Well, I I think you certainly succeeded in doing that. 
Um, now, the, the whole purpose of this book is, and we've been inundated with um, southern cookbooks, which emphasize the um, the laden table and, and all that, you know, that kind of um, thing. But you, you say snacks in the South are as important. Small bites are as important. And, and you can have a lot of them, but there's always something. And I like the idea that the southern woman feels secure only if she's got certain things in her refrigerator. You know, there's this, it's very, when someone comes to your house, you want to be able to offer them something. Uh, that's just part of Southern hospitality. So it's, it's something many generations of Southerners feel like if you have something, if it's some cheese straws I love and a that, tin that you keep on the counter or some pimento cheese in the refrigerator, there is a sense of security that you're always ready. You're always ready for any situation. Yeah, I mean, pimento cheese is a winner. Now, I told you the story, which I can repeat after reading your your little sidebar on Rotel. Yes. Yeah, it's that uh, we raised our son since we were a pretty cheese-centric family, and um, I, I was a, a restaurant critic and food writer, um, to really appreciate fine cheeses. And when he went away to college and moved out of the house, he called me with very, exci- very excited and said he'd made this wonderful discovery. It was called Velveeta. <laughs> and All he, your hard work oh, with one word. <laughs> I cried. I really literally cried. So, I can imagine. <laughs> but you're talking about the real South. And... Even if people don't buy Velveeta much anymore, everybody has nostalgia surrounding Rotel, right? Absolutely. I mean, every time I went to a friend's house when I was a child, in my first apartment, when I started having people over, Rotel dip, which is Velveeta and Rotel tomatoes, which are tomatoes with green chilies, that's the standard snack. Everyone across the South loves Rotel is what we call it. Um, there's always this idea that you had this dish that you made the Rotel in that you would call your Rotel dish. Yeah, I and I that. got one when I graduated from college that was a white souffle dish with sunflowers on the bottom <laughs> that was a gift from my aunt. And that, for years, the only thing I did with that, it was the Rotel dish. <laughs> I love that story. Eventually it cracked. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> But that was, you know, Rotel is a very nostalgic thing for Southerners. And you're right, people aren't so into the Velveeta. Or the only time I even come close to Velveeta nowadays is sometimes you just got to have Rotel. <laughs> well, you, well you, you have to have pimento cheese too, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Now, I'd never make pimento cheese with Velveeta. No, I understand. No. <laughs> no. But I, pimento cheese is, is, I think, the most iconic southern snack. My first book was all about pimento cheese, so it's a huge part of my life. And I try to give, in this, in this book, Southern Snacks, I do a version with um, pepper jelly, which gives it sort of a sweet, spicy edge, uh, which I really love. Because um, you can always, people are very particular about their pimento cheese, yes, but I, I think there's room for some innovation now, within reason. Yeah. Tell us about Sudden Sundays. I, I thought that was charming also. 
me. I live in West Tennessee in Memphis. Um, in later life, was these they called them sudden Sundays. And my grandmother would go to church on a Sunday morning and very casually say, well, why don't y'all just come over for a drink tonight? <laughs> and, of course, it was not as casual as she made it sound. She had always prepared nice snacks, and um, they had this lovely drink that they always made, and their friends would come over, and it was all what we like to call pickup food. Pickup. Yeah, you but they would, it was this pick, what we like to call pickup food, which was things like stuffed eggs and a cheese ring and uh, pimento cheese, country ham and biscuits. And it was enough food to make a meal. But everyone could stand around and walk around and, and congregate and talk to everybody. Childhood is the sudden Sunday. It's wonderful. Now, now, if you if you if you invited Auntie or Sudden Sunday, you would have you would have faced a challenge, because she, she told me the story of her neighbors in Philadelphia, who were from the South, and they were having oh, right. a, 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 sudden, a sudden Sunday with country ham and biscuits, and 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 went through all the biscuits and took out all the. Ham, the biscuits. Ham. <laughs> they were very annoying. So expensive. Well, no, you know, either one of those is in country ham or yeah. a real treat. Um, I, I really don't think I ever knew what exactly a beaten biscuit was until I read this in your book. Well, a beaten biscuit is a very regional specialty, I think. And this, again, comes from my the middle part of Tennessee and into Kentucky. Uh, and there are these, these very small, hard biscuits uh, that are made with a dough that is then sort of beaten on a counter or with a large wooden mallet till it's very pliable and then run through uh, a machine called a biscuit break, which is kind of like an old laundry wringer. Yeah, I've never heard of that. And the dough starts to blister, and then it's they're cut into biscuits and pricked with a fork and cooked. And you can just stick a butter knife in the edge and twist, and they pop open. And with a little butter and some salty country ham... That is the ultimate childhood food memory for me. Well, it's, you know, there's so many things here that anybody who knows or, or had part of a childhood in the South is going to get really teary and excited about. I mean, you have boiled peanuts, which, you know, that, that actually I understand um, from the Lee brothers is why they started writing cookbooks and they started their food thing because they couldn't get boiled peanuts in New York City. Absolutely. And boiled peanuts are an acquired taste. Yes. You know, they are soft and wet, not like roasted peanuts, and you pull them out of the shell and there's a little juice in there. I happen to love boiled peanuts. I buy them on the side of the road and at gas stations, and then I learn to do it myself at home. But it is, it, not everyone is a fan of the boiled peanuts. We interviewed the Peanut Man once at the, in Charleston. Yeah, he sang a song. You know that? Oh yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> we had him singing on for our program. <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. He had a real job at one point, but then he threw up. He, he lost. He lost his real job, so he got a, he got a new job singing about boiled peanuts. Yeah. Hey, whatever works. <laughs> so, now this one I can't let pass by because I'm really gagged on this one. <laughs> cool liquors. Let's hear about those. Are a specialty of, of the Mississippi Delta, very regional specialty, and that's it's Kool Aid pickles. <laughs> The very idea is just beyond me. <laughs> now, I'm going to admit I am a fan of the Kootlickle, but it is such a cultural touchstone in very rural North Mississippi. And I talk about you know, driving through Mississippi, and, and in front of you is just miles and miles of agricultural land with cotton and soybeans, and it's green and brown, and the sky is blue. And you stop at some little gas station, and there are these neon jars <laughs> that are the brightest <laughs> colors you see in the Delta. And they're coolicles, pickles to wit. Kool-Aid mix has been added to the brine, and they turn bright red or purple or blue or whatever <laughs> color Kool-Aid you choose, uh, you choose to make. And... I do know people who stop all the time to get a Kulikul in Mississippi, but I felt like that's such a piece of Southern snacking history that it deserved a mention. Now, what do you eat with Kulikuls? There must be. Is there, is there some particular piece of meat or that, that, that goes well with Kulikuls? I think you could probably try some fried bologna. Oh, there you go. <laughs> You're back, funny. Back, back to the South once more, right? There you go. So tell us about opening day of dove season. That was really... Opening day of dove season, which was is last weekend here over Labor Day. Oh, yeah? Is the, the weather is still pretty hot in most of the south, but kind of starting to turn. And dove hunting really is in an open field. You can do it at any time of day, unlike in wet water and things. So it's become sort of a tradition that people have a dove hunt and they'll all have friends and family, frequently business associates, and have a hunt and then have a nice picnic in the field. Depending on what time of day you do it, you might do it sort of a breakfast thing or snacks, but it's really a, a lovely outdoor opportunity to sort of gather in the beautiful weather. It's, it sounds to Although me, it's still going to be hot. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds to me a little bit like the Glorious Twelfth. It is. It is very much like the Glorious Twelfth. You know what the Glorious Twelfth is? I do. I went to graduate school in England. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and doesn't know. So I don't know. Let me put it in there. August 12th is the first day of the grouse season oh, okay. in Scotland. And all, all the rich people go to Scotland to shoot grouse. And there's a contest between all the restaurants in London as to, as to who can get grouse on the menu first. Yes. Right? Yes, and you can, usually it's rules. And you, and you, have, to be, rules. you, have, you have to be very careful because the, sh- the gunshot will still be in the grouse. <laughs> yes. I grew up in, with a father and a brother who were both bird hunters uh-huh. and many friends. And one of the 
the issues anyone in this situation faces is being inundated with the product of their hunting. Mm-hmm. And I, for many years, insisted to my father and my brother that I just couldn't cook something that was killed by someone I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not because I actually have that issue, but because I knew I would spend all of the fall and winter dealing with dove and quail and... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, I had a cousin who used to have whole deer hanging in his basement. I do, it's a little hard to get your hands on venison. People tend to like the good parts more. But yeah, well, that's the thing. I couldn't believe I had to pay so much because it was always so plentiful when I was growing up with yeah. a family of hunters. You know. The small birds are a whole different yeah, I guess so. <laughs> issue. I write in the book one time I, I asked my brother, I said, I just want three duck breasts. <laughs> to test this recipe, and he said, I'll bring you some. And he snuck into my house in the dark of night and left in my refrigerator about 25 duck breasts. Oh, no. <laughs> when I couldn't turn him away. <laughs> who, was it, who was it who shot his hunting partner? Was that, was that Dick Cheney? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was Scalia, he shot, uh, wasn't it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't remember <laughs> So anyhow, and, and of course I, we have to we have to persuade Donald to go south. <laughs> now that now that dove season is here, it would be a, would be a perfect time for him to go dove hunting. It might not be too safe, <laughs> <laughs> right? Especially when he's making fun of southern accents, dumb southerners. He said, "My God, yeah, that's uh, that's not very kind." No, it's very stupid. <laughs> Well, I think this book is just totally charming. We haven't even talked yet about gas station peanut brittle, and I mean, it's just and and there are really some really good um, recipes in here as well. I mean, it just gives you a whole new view of Southern society and the traditions surrounding food. In fact, almost everything surrounds. Food surrounds almost everything in the South, doesn't it? I think so. It's certainly a huge part of any time someone is telling a story about a a lovely memory, food is going to be a part of it. Yes. Well, I just I got such a a kick out of the book, and I wish you a lot of success with it, Perry. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so kind. Again, it's called Southern Snacks by Perry Coleman Magnus. And uh, you're, you're going to love it, listeners. Thank you. Thank you for talking to us, Perry. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. With our last segment, tell me quickly, when anybody thinks of the South, what is the first thing they think of? Pie, 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 pie. I answered my own question. There you go. Yeah, so um, I, I want to take this opportunity also uh, to put a plug in uh, for uh, Gina Mihalik and the University of North Carolina Press. They do a fabulous job. And uh, we've been following their Savor the South program and their other books. It's really a a wonderful um, contribution to culinary 
understand it in, in our country. Um, thank you, Gina. Thank you, University of North Carolina. And thank you, Sarah Foster, for giving us all these pie recipes for fillings and crusts. Um, I may make one one of these days. Let's listen to one of our favorite series has been the Savor the South cookbook series. And uh, we might be getting close to the end of that series now, but we have a delightful entry. Uh, Sarah Foster, who's been a guest on, on our radio show before, uh, did the what could be more southern than pie? <laughs> so that's it. Sarah Foster, welcome again. Um, well, thank you, Anne. It's good to be back. And this is my most favorite. Um, in fact, it's probably the only dessert I like is pie. I don't have to I think, it. I think a lot of people feel that way. It's, it's, I say in the book, you always have room for a little sliver of pie, if not more. Yeah. You can keep all the cakes in the world. I don't yeah, care. My, my order is this one. We have two different flavors. I like a little piece of each one. Oh, you sound like my husband. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a guy thing, I think. Yeah. I know. You can't give you guys too many choices. I'll go, which kind would you like? And he'll go, one of each. There you go. Well, he's he's, abs- he's absolutely right. It's not it's not just a southern expression. We do, we do that in Yorkshire, England too. I, I bet. Well, you you I said to you before we started the uh, formal interview, what new do you have to say about pies? You you seem to have found a lot of new stuff to say about pies. Um, Well, there are a lot of classic pies in this book, like a pecan pie or buttermilk pie, but I also um, do a lot of twist on some of those classics and also give you some new ones, like a green tomato apple tart. That sounds good, of, by the way. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, that's really good. The combination of the green tomatoes and the apples together, you kind of get this sweet and tart thing going on. So there's a lot of variations, a lot of different type pies, from icebox pies to fruit pies. Um, I have a whole chapter on savory pies, which is uh, you know, one of my favorites this time of year when the weather starts getting a little cooler. Let's Let's go back to that. That category we would, I was mentioning to you before we came on the air, which is icebox pies. Tell, tell our listeners who may be northerners or they may be not even American at all, what, what's, what's an icebox pie? I mean, what makes it different, what makes it different than a regular pie? Well, the great thing about icebox pies and, and one of the reasons they came about, especially in the south, it was so hot in the summers that people didn't want to heat up their kitchens to, to cook and make a pie and, you know, leave your oven going for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes to, to cook that fruit pie. So um, we would make pies out of um, pudding mixes and whipped cream and graham cracker and cookie crust. So they have the crust has very little time in the oven. Like my cookie crust, you only cook for 10 minutes. And then you finish the pie in the refrigerator. You might make your custard on top of the stove or some of them like the, in my uh, book, I have a recipe for Atlantic Beach pie. And that <laughs> pie, you don't even cook the filling. It's kind of like a key lime pie, but it's with lemon and the crust is made out of salting crackers. 
<laughs> is that the, is that the one you name after the guy who invented it? Yeah, well, it's Bill Smith's recipe. Yeah, he's a he's a great cook in Chapel Hill that uh, works at Crooks Corners, and he's done one of the Savor the South cookbooks. He did one on crabs and oysters. Oh right, yeah. Um, this the uh, one that I was telling you about my rum cream pie. You don't cook. You whip the cream. You don't cook anything, I don't think. And and you don't cook the crust. And it's crushed vanilla wafers, I believe. Yeah, yeah that yeah. sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's good. And it's you said it had lots of rum in it, right? Dark rum, which has a lot of flavor. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one. Um, there's another one in the Icebox chapter called uh, Raspberry Semifrito. Yeah, I and saw that, that one you put in the freezer, and that's kind of like an ice cream pie. That one's really good as well. Now, I mean, you have so many different categories here, and so many different recipes. You could make one every day. How many are there recipes here? There are fifty-two recipes in the book. So every week you make a new pie. She knows. She knows exactly how many, huh? <laughs> yeah, and on my, there are no photographs in the book, but on my Instagram account, I just finished 30 Days of Pies. I posted 30 photographs of pies. So my Instagram is Sarah underscore Foster's Market. Hold on. So you can see what they all look like on my Instagram account. Hold, hold, Make sure you check it out. Let, let's, get, let's write that down again. Do, okay. do that again for us. It, it's Sarah, S-A-R-A underscore Foster's Market, and that's the Instagram. And you can also go to the Foster's Market website, too. We'll have all the photographs and some of the recipes on that site as well. Yeah, I, I just like to have you move in and bake pies for me. <laughs> I mean, my mother always baked pies. And, um, you know, I, I never had cake on my birthday. I had blueberry pie. And oh, lucky you. And I just can't do pies. I've tried, and I just, um, it's a disaster. No, the, the, the well, I think one of those, the difference in a pie and a cake, a pie is at least one of those things that people will attempt. And you're not going to end up with a bad pie. I mean, you may not be perfect. Oh, but <laughs> I could tell you. <laughs> I made a strawberry pie for Peter once. And I, I I didn't have all the ideas aligned in my head, but I remember seeing my mother prick the crust, and, uh-huh. and I remember that she had uh, the um, liquid um, liquid with the strawberries and the whole fresh strawberries. But I didn't know the sequence here, so I made the crust, pricked it, then mixed up this filling and poured it in. And what happened? It boiled the crust because I didn't realize you had to bake the crust before you put the yeah, filling it in. Ran out, ran out. The, ju- <laughs> the, ju- the juice ran out through the holes. It ran. It was awful. Well, Absolutely. Well, awful. See, that's why you need a recipe. <laughs> well, well, you were miles behind the eight ball anyway because you went to the supermarket. This is this is in Australia, Sarah. She went to the uh-huh. su- she went to an Australian supermarket and and said. I need some frozen strawberries. Well, there's, there's no such thing. They, they don't do that there. <laughs> well, you you had a challenge to to start with, right? To begin yes. with, can't, can't even get the ingredients. No, you know, um, somebody wrote a, a book about pies from around the world. Every culture seems to have had a pie, right? 
Absolutely. I think um, that's one of the, the great things about pies. You know, they have crostatas in Italy and tarts and galettes in France and um, they're just, you know, they're in different cultures and, and you know, they came here f- from Europe um, many, many years ago as, you know, most of them were savory pies that people would make to kind of survive and travel, you know, across yeah, the ocean. What about, the, yeah, Cornwall, the miners had to have pasties, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you, you have a little story about one of your fig pies, and, and there's something about now you hope that your neighbors don't steal all the figs? Oh, uh, yeah. We have a great fig tree uh, at our, in our yard in Durham at, the, at Foster's Market, and it, it's the, the, it has so many figs in the summer, but we have to worry about our neighbors coming and taking all the figs from us. <laughs> well, we we had trees in our backyard in Mississburg, and and I found people just walking right off the street and picking them. <laughs> it was yeah, such so a novelty. That's what happens at the market. Well, if, and if the birds don't get them as well, yeah. What was the we had a cherry tree in D.C. And the birds always uh-huh. knew when, when the cherries were ripe because they, yeah, they, they denuded the trees immediately. Well, well they get the blackberries first, too, because they have, they have some kind of instinct that knows when the blackberries are going to be just perfectly ripe. Yeah, and gooseberries, Right, they too. wait until they get ripe. That's what they do with the figs, and then they just go after them, right, before we can pick them. Yeah, we they, even put netting up for the gooseberries, and then, they got then, then they taken. Eat them, then they eat them, and then they defecate the blackberries under the bushes. <laughs> it's really very unpleasant. Now, um, do you know about the... Um, oh, I just see Kathleen Purvis here. We just interviewed her, too, distilling the South. Um, do you know about... Uh, what's her name in, in Seattle who has the pie camp? No, who's that? Oh, she was married to John Riley briefly. Um, yeah, if, if you Google Pie Camp, you'll find her. I'm pie sure. Camp, I'm sure. And, Seattle. and if you have if you have any trouble, let us know, and we'll we'll look her name up. But she does Pie okay. Camp. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look her up. That sounds like a fun adventure. Yeah, you could do that easily with your bark and yeah. everything. And uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, the people love it. Well, and it's getting to be pie season, too, with all the holidays coming up. I think, you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas, pie, to me, is the traditional dessert. That's the dessert we always had in our house. Uh And you and I were talking earlier about I'm the person that eats pie for breakfast on Thanksgiving Day because that's when it's you're you're not full from eating everything else. So it's, it's a good idea to just have a little slice of pie early in the morning while you're still hungry. I'm, I'm keep looking at this oyster pie. I'm not sure about this crispy saltine crust. What do you think? Oh, I love that crust. It's really good. You got to try it. I mean, what's better? What goes better than oysters and saltines? That's true, I guess. And then you have country ham in there, onion, celery. Sounds yeah, quite just a little good. country ham to give it flavoring, and, and you, you know you don't in. cook it too long because you want your oysters to stay stay nice and succulent. Baby spinach leaves, sherry, dry sherry. Uh-huh. I mean, a little it, bit of sherry. Listeners, creative does not begin to 
describe these recipes for pie in Sarah's book. I mean, you don't have vinegar pie, I noticed. Isn't that southern? Uh, it is southern, but um, we have um, a variation on the buttermilk pie, which is, is, you know, the chest pie, the buttermilk pie, the vinegar pie. They're all oh, very they're all similar. they're related, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, the so you, you could... You could use the buttermilk pie and just, you know, add a little bit of vinegar to it. I think we even give you a variation in, in the book for it. Okay. One um, of my other favorite savory pies is the summer tomato pie. Oh, I was just about to mention that. Now, that sounds splendid. You see, I'm really That's a really savory good. person. That's really good. So for those of you that have the, all those end of the summer tomatoes that you're trying to figure out what to do with it, that's that's a great thing. It makes a great light supper or lunch, just all you really need with it, some mixed green salad, nice well, glass of chilled wine. And uh, I mean, where does this come from, sweet and salty peanut and Pepsi pie? <laughs> well, in the South, people used to mix their peanuts with their colas. Did you guys ever do that? No. So you would get a Pepsi or a Coke, and you would pour a bag of salted peanuts in it. No. Again, no. It's, kind, it's kind of that sweet and salty thing. Mm-hmm. So I think this pie, you know, probably originated from that flavor. Well, what did you but do? It, you poured the, the, the peanuts in, and then what did you do? You, I, do, I, you, only have one observ- it? I only have one observation. Uh-huh. Now, you, now I know why the South lost the war. <laughs> I don't even want yeah, to. So you <laughs> kind of drink this cola and crunch the peanuts at the same time. It's really good. You guys got to try it. How do you get the peanuts out? Uh, they come out when you drink the soda. It's not as difficult as it sounds, but give it a try. You'll love it. But that's where that pie recipe came from. Sarah, and what one is of my the, other fa- Go ahead. Your other favorite I was going to ask you. Go one ahead. of my other favorites that's also great for this time of year is the garnet Sweet potato pie. I was looking at that one, too. Yeah. Uh, And for Thanksgiving, too, I think, to me, the sweet potato has so much more flavor than the pumpkin. So I always make sweet potato pie for Thanksgiving instead of pumpkin pie. Yeah. And if you've you've never done that, you really should try it. It's great. I'm looking at your old-fashioned pecan pie recipe. Because I used a friend of mine's recipe for, for making this uh, pecan pie, and I was absolutely appalled at the amount of butter that went into it. Now, you don't have that. You have only three tablespoons of unsalted butter, whereas I think she had like a half pound of butter in hers. Oh, my goodness. I that know. must have been delicious, though. <laughs> but you know it's a bit much <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah I think it, you know it's got so many other good things in it um, it's definitely one of the sweeter pies if you like really sweet pies that's one that you know you can't go wrong with um, but yeah I don't put a lot of butter in any of them there's, there's enough butter in the crust and you know you want to taste that nice buttery crispy flavor in the crust for me and not the filling so much. I, I heard that uh, that Crisco was coming back for pie, for pie crust. Oh, well, my grandmother always used Crisco. So did my and, mother. But I heard there was yeah. a revival of that now. 
Yeah, so I think, that, you know, a good combination is to use a little bit of butter and a little bit of some kind of shortening. Right. The well, butter, I think, gives it the, the flavor. You have that nice buttery flavor, but the shortening will give it that expert, extra crispness. Yeah, and, of course, in England, they use lard. Yeah, yeah, my mother made... Always. Well, she, she made uh, sweet pies with blood, but she made savory pies with suet. Well, it's... Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a big thing in the South, too. Everyone used lard to make their pie crust. Really? Yeah. I guess that's basically what they had, but... Yeah, um, that's what they had then, and, and they, it made for a super crispy crust. Sarah, I think everybody has one problem with pies making them and that's the crust do you have any super duper tip on this well i have actually have a whole section in the beginning of the book on making pie crust um you know there's so many different tips my the the number one tip i would give anyone is to keep your ingredients cold cold. yes your butter your shortening a lot of people even chill their flour. I don't do that, but it, it can't hurt. So make sure your ingredients are really cold when you start, even your water or your egg, any kind of liquid that you're adding. And then not to overwork it. I think that's the that's number one mistake yeah. people make is overworking it. I um, I like to do mine by hand because I feel like you have more control of it then. You don't overwork it. But a lot of people have great success with doing it in a food process. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because my mother did not trust the the uh, processor to to make her pie crust. Yeah, for me, it's um, I, I don't like to do it that way. But I've had great pie crust that people have made in the food processor. But again, the key is don't overwork it and. You know, when you get to that point, you you really kind of want to see big clumps of butter in your pie crust. You know, you, 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 all the butter is not going to be completely incorporated. Yeah. You're going to see little like pea size or almond size clumps of butter when you're when you're rolling the crust out. And that's good for making it flaky, right? Yeah, and also you want to um, make sure that you let your pie crust rest. Like you don't want to make it, immediately roll it and bake it. So, you know, you want to make it, put it in the refrigerator to chill for a couple of hours. Um, that way the gluten in the flour has time to relax. Oh, and that's what makes your pie tough is when, you're, when you don't let the gluten in the flour relax and rest for a while. So... Chill it, don't overwork it, and let it rest, I think, are the are the, the key things to make it. Well, this is, you may have inspired me, Sarah Foster. <laughs> Again, the book well, is Well, I pie. hope you try a few at least. Uh, I, just, I just want to eat them, Sarah. I don't want to make them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the most popular person in town last summer when I was testing I bet all you the were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Thank you again, and uh, thank you for taking time to talk to us about the book, and I wish you uh, much success with it. Oh, it was my pleasure. So there you have it. You've journeyed south of the Mason-Dixon line 
you're loaded with bear, loaded for bear with new recipes and new adventures. Go, go there, I think, is certainly something we would highly recommend. And these three ladies will be wonderful guides, so get their books too. And uh, we'll be back same time, same place next week. Who, who will, where we will be? Who knows? You'd have to join us to find out. And in the meantime, bye bye.